The fourth in the 12 experiences that we're talking about, experience number four, is found in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8. Genesis 49 and verse 8 says, Judah, thou art he whom my brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey of my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. And who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal under the vine and his asses cold under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white as milk. The word Judah means praise. And how many of you know that the Lord Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah? You're also aware that when Israel went forth, they camped around the tabernacle, three to the north, three to the south, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west. And when they traveled, they broke camp and they filed out in single, camp, in single file, not one person at a time, but one tribe at a time. And the tribe that led the way the tribe that led the people of God was the tribe of Judah. Now, when Jesus Christ came, he was of the tribe of Judah. And that caused some consternation because the tribe from which the priests came, the ministers came, the ministers were the priests, they came from the tribe of what? Levi. Levi. And so here comes Jesus Christ, here came the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was not of the tribe of Levi. His father did not serve at the temple. He was not in the priestly family. He was not supposed to be the one who would be the minister, and yet he came and began to be the minister of all ministers, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course, some of his critics said, well, what are you doing trying to be in the priesthood? You don't even belong in the ministry. You don't even belong in the priesthood. You are not of the tribe of Levi. You're not of the ministry class. You're not supposed to be a minister. But beloved, how many of you know that just as then it is now those who are praisers, those who are Judites, those who enter into the high praises of God are those who will take the people into the battle. They are those who will take the people into the victory. They are those who are most fit to be leaders in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is a place of praise and worship and adoration of the Heavenly Father. And so Judah is a real blessing. And the experience of becoming a praiser is a tremendous blessing. Notice in verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, shall praise. Those who lead in worship automatically have a high and elevated place in the religious community. It is sometimes aggravating to ministers, to preachers, to discover that certain people will like the song leader or the worship leader better than them. And they'll say, how can this be? I'm the man of God. I'm preaching the Bible. All they're doing is singing a song. But there's something about those who lead others into praise that causes people to love them because they are blessed and they're doing something that blesses people so tremendously they're automatically blessed. 
And so many ministers refuse to watch a show like the PTL Club with Jim and Tammy Baker, or used to be Jim and Tammy Baker. Because you open up the show, and what do they open with? A mighty prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord, God shall pour out his spirit in the last days, and hallelujah. They don't open like that. Oh, when we see the king, oh, when we see the king. And they go from that into when we feel the power of his spirit. They don't go right into some prophetic anointing. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. When are they going to preach the word? When are they going to do the stuff? When are they going to heal the sick? They're not. Because entertainment is not geared towards the anointing. Entertainment is geared towards the praise and worship aspect that Christians love. And I'm not knocking that. It's all right. But I'm saying that what happens is that people are raised up to great popularity and great fame and great wealth and great things of all descriptions in the kingdom of God because of praise and worship. And people who are not praise and worship and music-oriented like most denominations that are dead aren't really music-oriented, they look at that and they say, that's no good. And then a lot of ministers look at that and they say, why? Why don't they have me on there giving a prophecy? Why don't they have me on there casting demons out? Why don't they have a man of God on there doing something? Why do they keep elevating these people who are singing and worshiping and praising God? Why do they do that? What's wrong with these people? Don't they know what's really important? Yes, they do know what's really important because nothing is more important than singing praises unto God. Nothing is more important than worshiping Him. Nothing is more important than exalting Him. Nothing is more important than those things. When I was a dorm supervisor in the dorm, when I was at Baptist Bible College many long years ago, the music students were all different. They were all more hip than the preacher students. And they divided you up. You were either in, you know, you were either going into the ministry or you were going into music. Or you were going into education. You had really three categories. And those who were going into music, they always wanted their hair a little bit longer. And they always dressed a little bit more flashy. And they always listened to music that had a little heavier beat than everybody else. And they were always getting down. Have you heard the latest album? And I was one of the preacher people. And we said, you know, these music folks need to get saved. <laughs> you see? Because at the time, I thought in terms of the Word of God. And I'm not making light of that because the Word of God is important. We preach the Word. We teach the Word. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. We understand that. I'm, making, I'm, not, I'm not making light of that. But what I'm saying is that there is an importance and a significance to praise and worship the scripture here says of, of the Judites, the people who are praisers, thy brethren shall praise thee. People who are good singers, people who are very talented. Here you are, and you're a real good singer, and you cut this little song, and all of a sudden, boom, you're on TV. And you can preach your heart out for 40 years and be the most anointed person in the country. You'll probably never get on TV. Probably never get anywhere if you're not careful. But if you've got a good song, you begin to be promoted, you begin to be elevated, you begin to be lifted up. And sometimes people don't understand that. They don't understand the significance of that, of praise and worship, and they don't understand that that's natural. 
There's something naturally elevating about a person who is a leader in the praise and worship of our God. There is a special place around them. And the Lord Jesus Christ did not come as a Levite because he did not come to uphold the law and teach people the truth about the Bible. Jesus Christ, I repeat, did not come to uphold the law and tell people, I'm going to tell you the truth about the Bible. He did not come with that attitude, but rather he came to bring righteousness and peace and joy and to cause people to worship and praise unto our God. That was his goal. That was his purpose. He didn't come to straighten everybody's doctrine out. He came to create in them the life and the joy and the excitement of our God. And so you read, when he was at the temple, he even had the little kids dancing. The kids were all out there boogieing, and the, the adults came in and said, Stop this. Stop these children from doing this. What in the world? We know Jesus is crazy. Now look what he did to the poor kids. You know, there's people who would say that if they came in this church a Sunday service and they saw the little kids down front dancing in the spirit, they'd say, how in the world are these people so crazy? They're trying to have church and worship God and they've got kids dancing all over the front of the church. They wouldn't understand that. They couldn't conceive of that. It never crossed their mind that God is worthy of such adoration and that we should release ourselves into that fullness of worship. Never even crossed their mind. But the brethren shall praise those who are of Judah. And there's that natural quality of, of lifting up and elevating those who are involved in the leading of praise and worship. Also it says in verse 8, Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Did you ever go up, just imagine yourself for a moment going up to your enemy and taking him by the throat. Just go right up and get him by the neck. Did you know there's no more of an act of authority that you could do than that? If you want to terrorize someone without hurting them or doing anything to them at all, go on to somebody and get them by the throat. Just get a good solid grip. Don't exert enough pressure to hurt. Don't cause them to scream out in agony and pain and all that. None of the iron claw or anything. Just go up and get them by the neck. And you talk about somebody melting. They're either going to punch you or kick you or, or just melt before you because there's... There's something about placing the hand on the throat that is a total authority over a person. And he says here that the, the praisers, those of Judah, will be able to go and place their hand on the neck of their enemies. Beloved, there is an authority in praise. There is an authority in those who learn the high praises of God. There is an authority that goes with the praises of God because it accustoms those who are praisers they become accustomed to entering into the presence of God. They become accustomed to being filled with His Spirit. They become accustomed to being in tune to what they sense the Spirit is doing. And all those things that they get accustomed to that relate to the Holy Spirit and the sensitivity to the things of God gives them a security and a boldness in who they are. And when they enter into conflict with the enemy, they can reach out in authority because they know who they are and they know who they are in God. There's an authority that is given unto those who are praisers. The Lord Jesus came and he began to speak with authority. And you know what people rose up against him for? They said, who gave you this authority to talk this way? They didn't even argue most of the time with what he said. Most of the things that Jesus said, the people who killed him agreed with. I mean, he came and taught certain doctrinal points. Most of them agreed with his doctrinal points. 
But the thing that really caused the hackles to rise up on the back of their neck was the authority with which he spoke. When he got up and said, this is the way it is, and they went, ooh, ooh, ooh. Who is this guy? Especially when people liked it. Oh, You see, a true intellectual today never says, I think. But they quote, especially if they're on shaky ground, they quote someone else. So if you go into the classroom with a liberal teacher who supposedly teaching the Bible and they don't really believe much of anything, they won't tell you, I don't believe what's in the book of Genesis. They'll never say that. You know what they'll do? They'll quote someone else. They'll say, as Dr. Dufunny once said, the things in the book of Genesis are filled with parables and dark sayings. And you go, what does that mean? You know, talk plain to me. Well, plain? Well, another professor once said, the things in the book of Genesis are hard to be understood and we should avoid childlike, simplistic explanations. Well, what does that mean? And they begin to mince words and go around the corners and all, but the Lord Jesus Christ came and he said, this is what I believe. And he spoke with authority. And when he began to speak with authority, people began to be offended. But beloved, he was the lion of the tribe of Judah and he had that authority because he was a praiser and one who exalted the name of our heavenly father and therefore there was an authority in him and he could go to his enemies and reach out if he had chosen and get them even by the throat. And they sensed that kind of authority and they were very afraid of his power. They were afraid of his power because there's an authority, that ability to reach and get your enemy by the neck. Verse 8, thy father's children shall bow down before thee more of the elevation and exalting of those who are in a praise ministry. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. Judah is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. I'll read that in the Amplified Version. The Amplified Version says, Judah, a lion's cub. With the prey, my son, you have gone high up on the mountain. And it pictures a little lion's cub that goes down where the the big lions have made the kill and it gets it a big piece of meat and goes running off up the mountainside into the mountains to hide and eat that little piece of meat. And then he pictures it also, he says, um, says he stooped down, he couched as a lion. So then it pictures him as just a normal age lion that would just lay down in dignity, you know, as a lion will just lay there and its head's up and all is just stretched out in dignity and repose sitting there as a statement of beauty and comfort, relaxation. You know how cats love to relax. But then he says, as an old lion, and who shall rouse him up? And that's a statement of fear because the old lion with the shaggy mane that's been around the long years, there's a lot of commotion can go on around them and they don't even move. But if some other animal comes along and dares to rise, to rouse out the the old lion with the shaggy man, when he gets up, you better watch out because he's mad now. And so they picture Judah as being all three types of lion, the little lion cub, the middle-aged lion or the young lion, and then the the full-grown lion, showing that in the praises of God there can be many different levels. There can be those who enter into praise and they just take something out of praise and worship that they've received from those about them. Even someone else made the kill. Someone else entered into the anointing. Someone else caused it to happen. But they can receive of it and enjoy it 
and partake of it. And others that are comfortable in praise and worship, they're part of it. They're really entering in. They're participating. And others who've entered into the authority even of the king of the jungle, and they can really rise up in the things of God, and they have a powerful anointing to press forward into the anointing and into the things of God. I love the picture of a lion. We entered into the Birmingham Zoo one day. And you know, a lot of places have a big chasm, that deep gulf that the Bible speaks about that you can't cross. A lot of them have something like that, and then there's no bars or glass. You can see the lion, but he's way over there, so he can't jump out. Well, in the Birmingham Zoo, it's not so. The lion's only a few feet away. You can almost touch him. Of course, there's big, strong iron bars, but I mean, he's right there. He's not over there somewhere. He's right there. We walked in the door, and the door happens to be right by the lion's cage. And so we walked in, and there was a lion there, and his head, I'm serious, with the mane and all, his head was probably two and a half feet in diameter, just this giant, maybe three feet with this giant flowing mane, gigantic head, and we walked in right out of the bright sunlight into the kind of a dimly lit area, you know, it was inside a building, we walked through that door, and there was this gigantic lion's head right in front of us. We went, whoa! Was it poor little Abigail? Who was it? One of our kids, one of our girls, maybe it was Jerusha, was real little, must have been Jerusha, real little, and she just screamed, Aah! totally horrified. Never been so close to such a monstrous animal, so vicious and so powerful and so awesome. And there's something awesome about those who really enter into the praise and worship of our God because of the authority and because of the power that is involved in worship. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver. Notice that phrase, a lawgiver, a lawgiver. Judah is a lawgiver. Mark that thought. Judah is a lawgiver. You see, the Levites didn't come to give the law. They came to enforce the law. And there's two kinds of ministry. The ministry that says, I'm coming to enforce the law. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And if I find out you did, I'm going to cut your head off. I'm here to enforce the rules. And that's the way the Levites were, that kind of ministry. We're going to uphold the kingdom of God. We're going to make sure that these critters do it right. And they got out there and their whole ego was wrapped up in forcing people and enforcing rules. But Judah is that which came, and it says that Judah is a lawgiver. There is the authority in those who rise up in praise and rise up in the anointing. They make the rules for the service because the anointing of God makes the rules, and they're no longer trying to enforce some kind of rules about here's the way a service ought to go. But all of a sudden, they're giving rules. Thus saith the Lord, God wants to do this. Let's take the service this way. There's a vast difference between those who are giving law and those who are enforcing law. I believe there's been a transformation in my life in the last few years from where I used to be an enforcer of the law and now I'm a giver of the law. And you'll have to meditate on that a while, but there's a drastic difference between the enforcer of the law and the giver of the law. And I have become a giver of law, not that I have become a law unto myself, but I'm giving the laws, the precepts, the doctrine, the principles that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon my heart, and I'm giving forth that law. 
rather than trying to find some way in the Bible. Could you prove that from the Bible? I don't have to ever prove anything. I've been delivered. I don't ever have to prove anything again with the Bible. I know what the Bible says, and I know, God, we're good friends, and we get along just fine. And I want you to study the Bible a thousand hours a week if you can. And I want you to get so close to God that you can hold his hand and kiss him. Make love to him if necessary. Have the closeness, all the closeness you can ever desire. And when you reach into that closeness, you'll discover that God is love. And you'll begin to love people, and rather than trying to enforce the rules, you'll find yourself giving law. And the law that you'll be giving forth is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which makes you free from the law of sin and death. I'm no longer a preacher of the law or a minister of the law of sin and death, but I'm a minister of the Spirit, a minister of the law of life in Christ Jesus, and I am, in fact, a lawgiver instead of a law enforcer. You know God's big enough to enforce his own laws? <laughs> God's big enough to enforce his own laws? I used to think, I'm going to stand up for God. He doesn't need me to stand up for him. He's doing fine. He's going to be doing fine whenever blasphemer ever lived. Is dead and gone. God will be doing fine. He's just as happy and stable. His kingdom is not being overthrown. He's not being cast down. He's not being put down. He's not being defeated. He's doing just fine with or without me. And it's not my job to uphold him and try and keep him going so he doesn't go under. But rather, it's my job to just be available, allow the Holy Spirit to flow through me, available for his kingdom, available for his service. Amen. The scepter of the rulership, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, and a lawgiver shall not depart from between his feet. Until Shiloh come, and unto him be the gathering of the people. Verse 11, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass is cold unto the choice vine. If you're binding your foal, it means you had a foal, and that's fruitfulness. To have a foal is a lot better than not having a foal. That's fruitfulness. You're animals at birth and you have foals and young ones you bind them under the vine you must own a vine you must have a vineyard so there again there's prosperity and binding your ass's colt more fruitfulness unto the choice vine there's even more prosperity you got not just things but good things the choice vine he washed his garments in wine and that's a picture of the son who's in the wine press trading the grapes making the grape juice, treading out the grapes. He says, and his clothes he washed in the blood of grapes. Verse 12, his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. The amplified verse 12 there says, his eyes are darker and more sparkling than wine. The picture there in verse 12 is someone who is inebriated and drunk and gotten happy on wine. And Judah is that praise, Judah is that anointing that causes people to become intoxicated with the things of God. God loves intoxication. It's not an accident that he caused things in the world to be intoxicants because God is pro-intoxicant. The question is, what kind of intoxication did he desire? Acts chapter 2 says, these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is only nine in the morning, but they have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And also Ephesians chapter 5, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled, pluriste. It is an active, 
continual thing, continually keep on, keep on, keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is compared to drunkenness because when a person is truly filled with the Spirit, they have another kind of mentality comes on them. They're intoxicated with His presence. I've been so drunk on the Spirit of God before that I couldn't walk properly. First time that happened to me, it really shook me up. I didn't know what was happening. I was still pastoring a Baptist church and I had started attending services secretly. Praise Tabernacle on Friday nights. Man, I was just preaching up a storm and I'd been praying for the power of the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues. I'd been praying and seeking God with all these restrictions I had on him. And one Sunday night I got up to preach and I really got wound up and the whole room just started swimming around. I went, uh-oh, what is this? So I stood there and hung onto that pulpit. It was a nice big white one I could hide behind it planted my feet, spread my legs apart, and got real good and stable, even though the room just kept moving around a little bit, and I hung on for dear life. I said, God, I hope this is you. Hallelujah! And then I preached for an hour and a half. Hard as I go, I was really anointed. And I kept saying, this must be God, but I mean, I just never experienced anything like this. This is, wow, this is blowing my mind. So after church, I went over and got by the side of the wall, and I felt the wall all the way down the building, you know, and several people thought, that looks unusual, you know, what is the deal? And I held onto the building. We went out for pizza, of course, after the service. I'm not dropping any hints, just relax, everybody sit back, don't think about food. We went out after pizza, for pizza after the service, and I was driving all over the highway, both lanes I was driving. We got out of there and I held the wall going into the pizza place and the people were with finally said, are you okay? I said, sure, I feel good. You know, <laughs> I was all whacked out. I was drunk in the spirit. What the word of God is saying to us here is those who enter into the praises of God are those who have the ability and will frequently do that which causes them to be totally intoxicated with his presence. Totally intoxicated with his presence. You say, well, pastor, how do I know if I've entered into this Judah type of experience? It's not difficult. You can tell pretty quickly if you've entered into this kind of experience. The two words that I would use to describe it is the words total abandon. Total abandon. Now, I'm not asking you tonight whether earlier in the service when we were praising and worshiping, I'm not asking you were you dancing or just standing? Did you have your hands in your pockets or in the air? Were you clapping or singing? Were you sitting or standing? Did you go to the back or the front and dance and boogie and jump up and down and scream and holler and whistle and shout? Those things are all interesting. But you see, it's not a matter of did you do that at a particular time or did you do that tonight? The question in the Judah group here, the, the tribe of Judah is, have you come into that place in God where at one point you entered into a total abandon, whether it was no longer you, it didn't matter what you looked like or felt like or what anybody thought about you, there was a total reckless abandon. You didn't care anymore. And you just began to dance and worship him and, and go wild, as they say. You were just completely beside yourself. Total abandonment. I know when I began entering into the things of the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit, I started attending Praise Tabernacle. And we went up there, and I watched all those people raising their hands and all. That all looked spooky to me. 
But the more I watched it, you know, then there came a time when I raised one hand up a little, and then the other hand, and then one hand all the way up, and then both hands all the way up. And then I got free to clap a little bit, and progressively things got better and better, and I got more and more into it. And one night a spirit of dance came on that place. And I've never been the same since then. Because I know I stood there in my seat and there was five people dancing and then there was 10 and then there was 20. Then there was 40 and then there was 50. And then there was 60. And all of a sudden I looked around and I said, man, there's not many of us left who aren't dancing. What am I going to do now? I'm starting to look conspicuous. Finally, this little old lady, bless her heart, she came over and grabbed me by the hands and says, let's dance. I said, oh, dear Lord. How do you tell, sweet little old lady? No. I said, I guess I will. And I didn't have any more idea about how to get wild and loose than the man in the moon. So I thought, well, I'll just do whatever she's doing. And we had a little group there. There were about six of us in a little circle. And I thought, well, they're all jumping up and down and kicking their feet out. So I said, I'll just try that. And I started jumping up and down and kicking my feet. And pretty soon I thought, this feels pretty good. And pretty soon I thought, man, I'm all hot and sweaty and breathing hard, but this still feels good. And we danced and we danced. We danced and we danced. So I thought, if I dance anymore, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm completely danced out. But that night I entered into an experience of total abandonment in him. You say, well, pastor, I can't do that. I'm too self-conscious. So was I. I can't do that. I'm too fat. So am I. I can't do that. I'm worried about what everybody's going to say. I'm supposed to be an intelligent person. Me too. I've been to college. I've been to college too. I had a degree, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah, but I have a reputation in the community. Me too. I thought I was somebody important. I pastored a Southern Baptist church. You know, I thought I was an important person. You know, community-wise. Beloved, it doesn't matter what we're talking about is a total abandonment to where it doesn't matter how you look or what other people think or what anyone else says about it. You say, well, I feel like I look better standing still. I got news for you. The risk of being cruel. You don't look any better standing still than you do moving around or any worse standing still than you do moving around. Because the truth is, you look just how you look. Dude, you, know, you tell me, do I look better I'm standing still? Do I look better than I do if I'm moving around? And you don't look any better or worse. That's a total deception of the mind. You don't look any better. You don't look any worse if you're moving or standing stationary or boogieing around. It's all the same. You're just you. You look like you. I look like me. We need to accept that. You don't look any better or worse standing or sitting or raising your hands or dancing. It's all the same thing. And so we end up with all these self-conscious things about the way it's got to be and the way people think of us and what we got to be and what if somebody makes fun. Did you know that you can turn on the TV to some teenage dance party and you can have a heck of a time making fun of those kids? And they're all just the right weight, just the right size, and they've got their youth, and they've got their health, and they got everything, and they got funky-looking clothes on, and they start jumping around and shaking their body, and you go, oh, that's crazy, look at that, that's insane, those kids are weird. <laughs> we don't look any funnier than they do. It's a matter of where you're at. If you're into boogie, into rock and roll, you look at them and think, isn't that great? 
If you're not, you look at them and say, that's insanity. If you're into worshiping God and being with people of God and living in the kingdom of God, then when you see people dancing, running around the building and having a good time and shouting, you say, isn't that great? And if you're not into those kind of things, you're going to sit back and say, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. What's wrong with these people? They're all berserk. They've gone mad. Beloved, it doesn't have anything to do with your weight or who you are or where you've been to school or haven't been to school or how smart or how dumb or anything else. It has to do with what's between the ears. It has to do with what's between the ears. You go down to a place where people with money in class are doing some kind of fancy ballroom dancing in tuxedos and you got men and women out there that weigh 300 pounds and they're just as graceful moving around enjoying themselves totally uninhibited because they feel comfortable doing what they're doing and they feel like this is proper thing to do. Well, I have a great revelation for you. What we do here in dancing and praising and worshiping, it's the problem. It's just that easy. And I'm saying to you, you can be a worshiper of God and enter into total abandon with him whether you weigh 100 pounds or 200 or 300 or 400 but there's an experience in God of total abandonment. And those are the words I want you to hear, total abandonment in worship. And once you come to that point, it doesn't mean you'll dance every service. It doesn't mean you'll shout every service or run up and down the aisles every service or do any certain thing at any certain time. But it means there's a freedom. You've entered into a baptism of freedom. There's a freedom in God. You can dance or not dance. You can raise your hands or not raise your hands. You can get down on your knees and pray or not get down on your knees and pray during worship. You can do whatever needs to be done because there's been a total abandonment unto him. And you're no longer self-conscious about whether people think your pants are too tight or your head's going to swell up and fly off and your face gets red and you're dancing around. You know how you feel sometimes. You're not worried about whether you're sweating or your makeup's running. It just doesn't make any difference anymore. You enter into that point of total abandonment total abandonment. I want to encourage you tonight to become a part of the tribe of Judah, to enter into that experience of total abandonment in him. It'll change your personality. It'll give you a new authority. It'll give you a new feeling about yourself. It'll give you a new slant to your entire personality and to your authority and to your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the next one, okay? The next one begins in verse 13, Genesis 49:13. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. He shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Also in the Amplified Version, it says, Zebulun shall live toward the seashore, and he shall be toward a haven and a landing place for ships, and his border shall be toward Sidon. Now, the word Zebulun means dwelling, or if you choose, home. Where do you dwell? You're dwelling or your domicile is your home. It's where you live. It's where you're at. And so Zebulun is dwelling. It is, in fact, the principle of the local assembly becoming your home. And that is a very profound concept. There are two things involved in what we read here in verse 13 about Zebulun. One is the principle of a haven. 
A haven is a place of rest and recuperation and enrichment and excitement. A place where you can go and get away from a lot of other things and kind of pull in and get your battery charged. A haven. One of the old songs talks about a haven in the time of storm. And the picture is that a ship is out on the sea and the sea is tossing to and fro and the wind is blowing and the waves are tossing the ship and you finally make it safely into the haven of rest. And in that haven there is a rest and a repose and an opportunity to refresh yourself and relax. Beloved, when we go out into the world, there's a friction, there's a turmoil, there's a confusion, there's a challenging from this side and a challenging from that side, and this group wants you to think this, and this group wants you to think that, and the government tells you to do this, and the school tells you to do this, and your family wants you to do that, Everybody wants you to do this, and there's all kinds of things going on all around you. There's always somebody putting pressure on you to do this and go here and do that and all that, and you, you escape from all that, and you enter into the local assembly, a place of dwelling, a new home, as it were, and that becomes for you a haven. This should be a place where your soul can find rest and repose and peace in a time of trouble, in a time of storm, there's a quality about the house of God and the people of God and the kingdom of God that no matter if life is crashing around you, your finances have crumbled, things have gone wrong, your house has burned down and everything around you seems to have gone to dirt, you can enter into the presence of God with the people of God. You can find a sweet repose. You can find a stability. You can find a rest. It's as though the house of God were a healing hospital for the people of God a haven in the time of a storm, a place of rest and sweet repose, a place where we can be refreshed from the things of the world. Oh, how we need to understand that we are involved in a hospital ministry, a place where people who have been wounded and hurt, kicked around in the world, come out of the storms of life, and they come in to be ministered unto. Most of the dead denominational churches have a totally false view of worship and church, a totally false view which says that people come in and we're indoctrinating them, we're telling them about God, we're explaining to them the difference between evolution and creation and why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews and we go through all these discussions, you know, and we're entering into all that and we're teaching the people what they need to know. But if only the ministry would open their eyes and look out, they will see if they have any discernment at all, a room full of people who've been beat up and abused and hurt, and they're tired and they're worn out and it's been a long week, and they come in like someone who's been out in the field working hard all day. They come in and they need a good meal. They need a good cool drink. They need the refreshing of the Lord. They need a haven from all the trouble and distress and trials and heartaches of the world. And they come into the place of God as a place of refuge in the time of storm, that haven, that place of rest and repose. They come in to be ministered unto even as you'd go into a hospital. Beloved, many there are who are not attached in reality to a local body and they've never made that body their family. They've never entered into that place of rest. Let me say unto you that they may have some relationship with God, but it has no comparison that has no, no way to compare that with what God intended for Christianity and experience with him to be. The Lone Ranger Christians, as we call them, those who are 
out floating around from place to place and church to church and and they have a, a big brag about God and who they are and what they are and what they know and what they can do and what they believe and they've got all those things but they're not plugged in and connected they're not involved they haven't found a dwelling place for their soul they're like a person you say well what do you do for a living I'm in the military in the army no you're in the Navy no you're probably in the Air Force no Coast Guard no well I don't understand if you're in the military what branch are you in uh, I'm just in the military you're in the military you're not in the Army Navy Coast Guard Air Force Marines you're not in any of that no I don't belong to any certain local church I'm just a Christian at large kind of I enjoy all of them parallel well some days I drive by the Air Force base and see the planes take off but in fact, they have no relationship and no belonging and no station anywhere. And in fact, if they're not anywhere on Sunday, nobody knows. Because the people at the Assembly of God thought they were at the Baptist Church. And the people at the Baptist Church thought they were with the Methodists. And the Methodists thought they're visiting the Lutherans today. And the Lutherans said, oh, they're probably at the Bible study downtown. And everybody assumed they were somewhere else, but nobody knows where they are because they're not accountable to anyone and they're not in relationship to anyone what if somebody said who's your family oh everybody's my family I've escaped the trap of just having a few people in your family by letting everybody all mothers are my mother and all dads are my dad and all pastors are my pastor, and all Christians are my friend, and all children are my children. That way I get the benefits of everything out there. No, that way you don't get the benefits of anything that's out there. What that means is you don't have any children, and you don't have any dad, and you don't have any mom, and you don't have anything. And I'm saying to you, the people who are not plugged in have never had the experience people who are not truly plugged in and welded knit together in the body of Christ have never had the experience of a dwelling place of finding a new home now what happens is most people come to church and they're relatively normal their primary relationship is usually with mother although occasionally it will be with father it's usually mother and secondarily they have a relationship with their husband or wife Thirdly, they have a relationship with their own children. Fourthly, they have a relationship with their brothers and sisters and their family and their cousins and people who are close to them. And on down from that, they have the people they work with every day that they're very close to. And they begin to come to church and they slide the church in right on the bottom. Right down there, we love the people of God and we love the church, hallelujah. Of course, it's not as important as the bridge club. It's not as important as the people I work with. Certainly not as important as my kids and my mom and my dad and my husband and wife and my dog and my cat and all the other things. But we sure do love them. They're just great Christians. Hallelujah. And they're all excited and they've slipped God in down there. And what happens is if they will allow themselves to be free from other influence and yielded to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will cause that to begin that relationship with God and the people of God and the church to go up higher and higher and pretty soon the relationship with the church is more important than the people they work with 
And pretty soon it's more important than cousins and all in another state. And pretty soon it's more important even than their own children. And eventually it's more important even than their own spouse. And eventually you get up to the point where you're right up near the top and there has to be a confrontation. There has to be a battle. There has to be something happen because that person, that relationship that's number one in your life, though it's never been said, though it's never been written on paper, it's there. There's a knowing. There's a, a determination in your heart. I know it's true. You're convinced of it. There's no doubt this is the primary thing in my life. And when the church gets up to that, bang, you have an explosion. Because those people who have your heart so knit into theirs don't let you go without a battle. And when the things of God begin to rise in your evaluation and your importance and your personality and all begins to be entwined in that and it begins to shake that primary relationship and the people of God and the things of God and all begin to cry, we want to be number one, we want to be number one, we want to be number one then there has to come a time of choosing, there has to come a battle, there has to come something will happen to precipitate that and a choice will have to be made. And somebody will tell you, you're going to have to choose. Say, well, why don't, why don't they just see the handwriting on the wall and say, well, they've really gone gung-ho religious and just take second place and be happy. It doesn't work that way. Why doesn't a husband or wife when their spouse has found somebody else to love, why don't they just say, oh, you love them more than me? Great, that's no problem. I'll just be second fiddle. When you're tired of playing on their fiddle, you can play on mine. That's okay. I understand that. That's as good. Hey, friends, it doesn't work that way. When you're involved in a deep relationship with someone and that number one spot we're talking about is usually going to be mom, but sometimes it'll be the spouse. And not very often, but occasionally it'll be the husband, and occasionally it'll be a child, but it's usually the mom or the spouse. And you come into that place, and there's an explosion. Boom! And all hell breaks loose. Because the powers that be in your life have been shaken, the kingdom of God came forth, and all of a sudden you have a new home. A new home. Most of the people in this room... The kingdom of God and the people of God in this place have ascended in your life and in your experience to number one position. Most of you have. A few of you perhaps have not. Six months ago I could have looked out and said a lot of you have not. But alas, when the explosion came, when something precipitated a crisis, when there had to be a decision made, they said, I choose to stay as it is. And that person who was number one, whether that was a spouse or a mom or whoever it was, sucked him right back in and said, I got you and I will not let you go. And they said, okay, I love you too. But beloved, the word of God would teach us here concerning the tribe of Zebulun, the principle of dwelling, the principle of the local assembly, that principle of a new home and a new primary relationship. And I want to tell you, this doesn't have anything to do with how religious you are or how much you read the Bible. It has nothing to do with anything like that at all. Because I went through most of my life and I never had a dwelling. I never had a real home, spiritually. I was in the Southern Baptist Church pastoring in that church. I did not have this experience in that church. I did not have a new home. I had a place where I worked and I taught the Bible 
and they better come and listen and do what's right because I was going to enforce the law. And that's the kind of a relationship we had. It was not until then that I found the experience of dwelling, the experience of having a new home. And my own family sensed that in the battle. They were losing ground quickly and they were becoming number two. And so they began to lay all that stuff on me. You're making a mistake! You're making a mistake! Turn back! So the harder they talked, the less I came by to see them. So they finally decided, if we hope to see our son at all, we better be quiet and leave him alone and let him go where he wants to go. And so eventually they backed off and they quietly assumed a second place because I experienced the Zebulun experience of dwelling where the local church became my home. It became my haven. It became a new home for me. And the kingdom of God and the people of God became primary. And I want to say that many of the people who are the most religious and most involved never experience that experience because it's never dawned on them that God would even dare to challenge any relationship they have. They operate on the assumption that all the things in my life are okay. God's not interested in relationship. He wanted me to quit smoking or drinking and not commit adultery, and I'm doing that. Therefore, God is happy and I tithe, and I know God is really tickled about all that. And they leave all the things and the relationships in their life with husband and wife and parents and children, they leave all that alone, and they assume that that's not God's territory. But the Bible said, and the Lord Jesus said, and our spiritual gem that was in our newsletter this month, says, if you love mother or father, and who did it list first? Mother. If you list mother, if you love mother or father, more than the people of God and the things of God, then you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And I'm saying to you that in this particular experience of finding a dwelling place, it's finding a new home, a new place of acceptance, a new place of warmth, a new place of love, a new place of letting down your hair and being you. You know, I have relatives all over the country and none of them even know who I am, don't have the foggiest idea of who I am or where I am or what I'm like. And I saw an aunt some months ago and she tell you how far out of touch she is. She said, now I heard that you believed in speaking in tongues. Is that true? And I thought, man, how in the world? I mean, you are so far behind understanding where I'm at. I have to explain to you, yes, I really do speak in tongues and I live in Texas. I mean, you talk about far behind. And I'm not making fun of my aunt, but I'm just saying in her mind, She's right in there. This is my nephew. Hello, Calvin. You know, when I was a little boy, they called me, Hello, Calvin. How are you, little boy? And how did you start speaking in tongues? Isn't that cute? You know, and to consider where she's at and where she thinks our relationship is in terms of who I am and what our relationship actually is, you just go, Oh, Lord, this is too much. I mean, you talk about a great gulf fixed. It would take months of all-day training just to explain to her who I am and what I've experienced and where I am. But you folks already know all that because this is my home and you are my family. And when we enter into fellowship, we had a good time of fellowship today over lunch. No one asked me, do you really talk in tongues? <laughs> Little Calvin, you were so cute when you were a boy. I didn't have to go through any of that. 
because we have a present-day living, vital relationship with one another. And Jesus said, Behold my mother and my brethren. And his mom was at the door saying, Go tell Jesus I'm here. He'll get me a seat on the front row. And he said, No. My mom's already here. Behold. There's a beautiful experience of dwelling and being knit into the people of God. And I exhort you tonight in the name of the Lord to allow that experience to well up within you. It's the experience of dwelling. It's the experience of the local assembly becoming your new home. Most of you have experienced that. For those who have not, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus to press in. I exhort you that when that time of conflict comes and there's a challenge for the number one contender, and the number one contender in this corner we have, the people of God in this corner we have, Mama! I'm not just being dramatic. Life is based on relationship. And it's inconceivable to a person who's been your mother for 30 years and who's been the number one person in your life for 30 years, it's inconceivable to her that she would be bumped out of place. She cannot conceive it. You can't go tell her it's in the Bible. You can't explain it to her. All you can do is love her and say, you're number two, but you're the greatest mom in the world, and hug her and go on and let it go at that. Because there's no way in the world to explain to them how that can happen because to the natural mind, that doesn't make sense. How can you dare get her out of number one? For those of you who are married, let me just make an observation. She's not supposed to be number one anymore anyway. When you were married, she's supposed to become number two woman in life. And until you get over the hurdle of mom being number one and your wife being number two or your husband being number two, until you get over that hurdle, you don't even have a prayer for making the kingdom of God number one. You don't even have a chance. But the principle of Zebulun is the principle of the local church becoming a new home. Let's move on to the third principle found in verse 14. Found in verse 14. Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and he bowed his shoulders to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Reading also in the Amplified, Issachar is a strong-boned donkey crouching down between the sheepfolds and he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear his burdens and became a servant to tribute. The principle of Issachar, the word Issachar means reward. Reward. And the principle of Issachar is the principle of discovering that you are actually working in life for God. And it is he whom you are serving, and it is he who will reward you. And when that comes upon you as a revelation, it will change your personality. It will change your identity as a church member. It will change everything about you because you're no longer there for all the previous reasons. All of a sudden, you're in the kingdom of God. You're working in the kingdom of God. You're serving God. You're loving people. You're working in the church. You're doing all these things for him. 
And it doesn't matter if you sing a good song and somebody forgets to say amen or pat you on the back. It doesn't matter if you're teaching a class and did a good job and somebody forgot to come by and thank you for teaching their children. It doesn't matter if the reward is adequate down here because all of a sudden there's an awareness, there's a knowing, there's a consciousness, there's something that has invaded your personality that has let you know deep down in your inner man that you're his on his payroll. And that's a whole different kind of ball game. A whole different kind of situation. Notice here in verse 14, there's a strength. This is a strong ass, a strength. But also notice a couching down between two burdens. There's a humility that is involved in this experience. You see, some experiences will make you proud. Some experiences of giving a powerful prophecy and praying for 50 people and they all fell on the ground and you prophesied over them all and they all jumped up and danced in the spirit and, and jumped around and bowed down before you. You know, you can have an experience in God that will lift you up in pride. You say, oh God, did you see that? Man, they are good. But the principle of Issachar is the principle of reward. And it's actually of coming into that relationship with God where you know who you work for and who your rewarder and who your provider and who your sustainer and who your health and who your strength and who everything is coming from. And you realize that it's not this situation, it's not these people, it's not all these things. But actually the key issue becomes your actual personal relationship with him and you know you're working for him. He's going to pay you at the end of the day. He's going to sustain you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to do for you and be for you all that you need. Notice also in verse 14, not only a couching down showing a humility, but a couching down between two burdens. Now I want to say there's a balance. If you take a donkey or a beast of burden and you place on it one burden on one side, then pretty soon you're going to break his back because he can't work. He's all lopsided. And in the past, there have been a lot of Christians who were lopsided, and they had a lopsided experience. But the burden of working for God and the joy of serving God and being loved and, and blessed and all the joys have got to balance out a little bit. And if they don't balance, you'll have somebody who's, who's offset, they're unstable, they're weirded out spiritually. There has to be a balance. If a person is all joy-oriented, they want to come and one church was accused of being the cake and ice cream church. You know, all people want to do is come down and shout hallelujah and then leave. They just want the joy. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to paint the building. Nobody wants to mow the lawn. Nobody wants to pay the bills. They want to come and have a cheap shout. I want to have a good time. I want a boogie. Let's have a band come in and boogie, man. And then I won't come for three months till you have another band so we can boogie again. There are people who get overbalanced. They want the good time. They want the cheap shout. And you see, you can't build a church on that. There's no foundation. There's no stability. There's nobody to get the work done. There's nobody to do the things of the kingdom of God that must be done. On the other hand, in the past, a lot of people have been work-oriented. They didn't have any fun. They just said, I'm serving God. Oh, it's hard. It's really bad, but I'm hanging on. I hope I can continue. This is really hard. Oh, God, I hope I can make it another year. I hope I'm here next year at this time. Pray for me. And they go through all that junk, you know. And the whole life is a burden. It's a drudgery. It's a drag. It's all work and no play. No dancing and praising and rejoicing and going out and eating and fellowshipping and having fun with people. And this kind of an experience, for it to be right, it has to be balanced. You have to balance your work and your joy, the work and, 
and the play, it has to be a balance, the responsibility and, and the excitement and joy have to be balanced properly. Otherwise, you have somebody who's a workaholic and they bring that workaholic stuff into the church and they just run around with a long face. I want to serve on committees and I want to work and I'll do anything that needs to be done. Don't expect me to dance in the spirit or go fellowship with nobody and none of that junk. I don't even believe in that. You've got somebody who's all balanced over on the work end. Then you have the other kind that we've already said. They just want to cheap shot and boogie around and take off somewhere. We've got to balance that out for our experience in God, especially this, this awareness of who we're working for and what we're really doing here. It can't be properly done or properly appreciated without that balance between the burden and the joy. Notice in verse 15, he saw that rest. He saw that rest was good in the land, that it was pleasant. And he bowed down his shoulders to bow. And again, we see a picture of humility. Humility. This kind of experience, you can't... It's not that this experience will humble you as much as it is if you're not already humbled, you can't even enter into this experience. A person who's proud cannot enter into that experience. A person who's proud is the same thing as a person who's self-centered. And a person who's self-centered spends all their time, and this is a paradox, they spend all their time worrying about me. But in fact, they get shortchanged because all the joy that's involved in loving and have relationship with other people, they miss it. And they're so wrapped up in their own problems and what they're feeling that you can be dying or having a revival. Either one right next to them has no effect on them because they never noticed. Let's see, I was all right this morning until I woke up and I had this thought. And you're going, I don't need this. Come on, give me an answer. They don't want to care what your answer or what you're thinking or you're doing or what's happened to you. They're only concerned about number one. And there is a self-centeredness that people are raised with. They're taught it by their parents. When their parents continue to ask them, what do you want? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How do you like it? What do you want? Honey, 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 what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want? What, do you, what would you like? Red, blue, green? And the parents teach them to be self-centered and teach them that everything in life revolves around what you want, what you need, and what you desire. And a person like that is almost ruined for coming into relationship with other people. But he's picturing here a person who is a humble person who gets down and humbles themselves to get under a burden. And there's a humility that God is working into us as a people. There's a humility that God is working into each of us individually in teaching us to bow down. It's not an accident that Jesus Christ got down on his knees in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. He could have said, I want you to sit back and put your feet up on the table in this bowl of water and I'll stand here and wash your feet. You can wash feet that way, you know. But you miss the humility aspect of actually getting down. He humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross, if you will. So there's a humility here in verse 15, but notice how he ends verse 15. Zebulun became a servant unto tribute. Now what happened was when an enemy king came in and conquered a land, he subdued them and they... They gave up all rights, and he said, All right, I've got all of you. You're mine. And then he told them, I'm going to tax you. I want 100 shekels of silver for every man. I want 20 shekels of silver for every woman. I want five shekels of silver for every child. I want it on January 15th, or what is the IRS? When do they want it? 
April, I want on April 15th, I want so much, and I want it at this time, and that is bondage. As far as I'm concerned, the IRS is an evil demonic institution that has placed the people of God and the people of America in total bondage. And that's the truth you want to talk about. Back in Rome, the Roman government forced the Jews to pay tribute. Let me restate that. They paid taxes. They paid taxes under the Roman government, which the Roman government didn't have any right to tax them or anybody else. The Jews were a separate and independent people, but if you'll allow somebody, all you need to do is go out and tell somebody, if you want to force me to pay you money every year, I will. You will? Yeah, in fact, I'd pay you up to 30, 40% of my income. You would? Well, what would it take to get you to do that? Well, all you have to do is threaten to do something mean to me. Okay, let's see, I'll break your arms and legs. I'll do everything to you. Don't do that. Help, I'll give you the money. Here it is. Same principle, only on a bigger scale. Getting kind of quiet in here. Took my course in money and banking in college, and the professor started out, and he had a PhD in economics. He's a very renowned scholar. He said, if you ran your personal finances the way the government runs theirs, we would lock you up immediately and call you a criminal. But he said, by definition, the government says, we're in charge and whatever we do is okay. So then there are no rules. They do whatever they want to do and that's the way the IRS operates. A fear and terrorism. We better leave that principle. I'm making a bad illustration here. Maybe I'll go to a different kind of illustration. But anyway, what they're saying is, a government comes in and imposes upon the people a tax. A tax. And this experience is an experience where we come into relationship with God in such a way that all of a sudden, you see, people come into the kingdom of God. They come and they begin, they go to church. Their neighbor invites them. They come in and they say, this is fun. I like that. Your pastor, he's a nice guy. Sister Mercy, she leads the worship. She does a good job. I like the way she jumps around. She's a cute lady. I like that. And they come back a few times and they say, you know, this is good. I feel a sense of warmth here. And still, we're way down on the bottom. Their relationship is very shallow. But as they grow and as they grow, all of a sudden they begin to say, I like these people. I think I love the pastor. I think he loves me. This is a good place. I feel warm. I get the warm fuzzies when I'm here. And then they begin to give, and then they begin to be involved, and all of a sudden, their heart begins to be turned toward God and the church and the kingdom of God, and those things begin to take a priority in their life, and they begin to get in there and work, and I'm working because I enjoy coming to work day and working with Brother Belusi, and I love to come over and help Brother Leroy mow the lawn, and I enjoy doing this, and I enjoy, boy, this is fun, hallelujah, yeah, thank you, Jesus, and they get all involved but they still haven't looked up and had any awareness of really what God is after and what's going on. But as they mature a while and as they grow in God, all of a sudden on their bed one night or in a church service or in a quiet prayer time at home, there comes a revelation unto them, God, you predestined all this all along. You brought me to this church. You had me in this place. You brought me through these experiences. God, you've been watching over me. You've been training me. You've been leading me. Oh, God, I thank you. I can see it all clearly now. Lord, I'm your servant. Lord, I'm your child. God, I'll serve you forever. I'm so thankful, Lord. I can see a newness in our relationship. It's much deeper than I ever dreamed that it was. And there comes into them that awareness that they are God's servant. Paul frequently boasted, and he wasn't saying it as a statement of humility, he was saying it as a boast, I am God's bondservant. The Greek word doulos, 
It means a slave. Not just someone you hired to mow your lawn, a slave. And you come to that awareness, God, I'm your slave. I love you. I'm a love slave. I'm bound by your love. And you come into that awareness before him, and all of a sudden everything around you takes on a new light. And you say, I love Brother Roger Gunnell because God first loved me, poured out his love upon me, sent Jesus to die for me, washed me in his blood, brought me into this church and caused us to have a relationship. Whereas before you just thought, I like Brother Gunnell, he's a heck of a good guy. And you didn't have the awareness that God was behind it all. He was moving, he was changing, he was redeeming you, he was renewing your mind. He had all these things in process before you were even born. And you come into that awareness of who God is and how awesome he is and how he has put you in these relationships with people and how he's caused you to grow. And there comes an awareness into you that everything you're doing, you're doing. Now, I got news for you. That may not sound profound, but if you're his bondservant and everything you're doing is for him, that opens up a new door and looses you into a new liberty. He may want you to do that for him in Rhodesia. He may want you to do that in Canada. He may want you to be a missionary to Japan. He may want you to pastor a church in Mexico. He may want you to go and do something in a far country or another city or another town or in another place or in another way or do something. Who knows what God may want you to do if he ever comes to a place where he actually has that relationship with you and you're aware that he's been using you and molding you and changing you all along. And all of a sudden there comes an intimacy into your life. There comes a personal intimacy into your understanding there's an awareness that he knew you before you were ever born and he's been molding you and making you and all of a sudden God is your father and all of a sudden the church is your mother and all of a sudden you have a new perception of everything around you and God himself has become your reward. And you no longer think in terms of, well, I taught a class and they forgot to thank me and I was supposed to have a dinner and it rained and we didn't go and I didn't get thanked properly and I'm so upset. No more being upset because you're serving him and he pays good wages. And you no longer think of yourself as serving the pastor or the deacons or the church leaders. And you realize I'm serving him. Blessing is your reward. His presence is your reward. And your responsibility is to be his bondservant for all the days of your life. That is a profound and a deep and a humbling experience. But for God to be your reward is to me one of the greatest privileges in all the world. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I want to exhort you tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus to diligently seek him, to allow him to be your reward, and to see yourself in a new light. But if you can rise up and enter into that relationship, to see yourself as a servant of the Most High God and that He is your reward. You're working for Him just like you'd hired on at DuPont or IBM or Texas Instruments. You're working for Him and He's going to reward you. Some of you don't understand me because I'm not like you. What's the matter with Him? He's not like me at all. Well, first of all, I'm not supposed to be like you and you're not supposed to be like me. We're supposed to be who we are. 
But secondly, I have some different kinds of motivations than some of you do because I've come through that experience that we're describing where God is my reward. The Lord told me long ago, He said, don't worry about money and houses and junk because He said, I got some good things in store for you. He said, someone eventually will give you a beautiful home. Don't worry about it. Don't spend all your time trying to figure it out. Just serve me. Someone will give you a beautiful home someday. Just give you the keys. Here it is. It's only a two-car garage, and I know you have three vehicles, but, you know, it's, it's all we had, and God said to give it, and I apologize that it only has a two-car garage. I said, no, no apologies needed. Don't apologize. I understand. The Lord told me in advance it only had a two-car garage, so I, I accept it as is. But if you wanted to build a third bay on a garage... That would also be acceptable. And you see, if the Lord is your reward, then you don't have to spend so much time taking care of yourself because all of a sudden you know that he's going to take care of me. There's a whole different way of looking at life if God is your reward, if he's your provider, if he's your sustainer, if he is your protector. There's a whole different way of looking at life, a whole different way. Because sometimes if you only look at it in the natural and saying, I work so many hours for the church and I get so much reward and the pastor commends me so often and all, you might say, that's not enough. I'm just not getting enough. <laughs> but you see, it's a whole different situation if he's your reward. There's never any, been anybody come to the Lord and say, God, you owe me. You need, need never worry about coming to that place in your life. God will be a debtor to no man. Jesus said, if you give up houses and land and mother and kids and father and relationships for me, you will be repaid a hundredfold, what did he say? In this life. I gave up my family and I've already been repaid a hundredfold. I've given up a lot of things for the kingdom of God and I've already done a good substantial portion of my hundredfold repayments already come. And I've tried to work hard and do right and done everything to excess that I knew how to do to please God. And I declare that God has never failed me. He's never shortchanged me. He never owed me 200 and gave me 100. God has taken care of me. He's my provider. He's my sustainer. He's my reward. He's a strong tower that I can run into. He's a haven of rest. He is all that I need him to be and more for me. And if you enter into that experience where God is your reward and you understand that you're his servant unto tribute, you're even his bond slave, then it will change your whole emphasis, your whole feeling about who you are in life. I want to thank you for your attention tonight.